If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're quite welcome to grab one from the back. If you put up your hand, um, one of our ushers will bring one to you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're quite welcome to take that home with you and make that your own so that you're able to uh, learn from the Word of God throughout the week. We're reading from Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you. Uh, my name is James. If it's your first time out, we're just real, so glad you, you joined us this morning. Uh, if you want to just fill out a connection card, we'd love for you to, to get to know you a little bit more, to help you even uh, take next steps uh, around our community life, from, which we call missional communities. And uh, we'd love to explain those a little bit more to you. And uh, it's really a vital part of uh, not making a church, even a church this size, and today we're a few less in numbers, but uh, to actually get to know people uh, on a personal level. And it's our, it's our way for us to do mission together. It's our way for us to be family together. And it's a way that we learn to be disciples together. So I encourage you to fill out a connection card. And we want to invite you into, uh, into this uh, next step of being part of this church. And so I'm going to open the, the Bible with you today. Uh, if you haven't turned there, you want to turn to Genesis 11. And uh, if you haven't received a Bible yet, uh, just throw up your hand and our Frontlines team will uh, bring that to you. We're continuing in our series that we've been calling Vocation. And the word vocation literally means a calling or calling. What, and most of us, if we were really honest, don't see our work as our calling in life. Uh, some of us uh, don't even like our work. And so you wouldn't say, uh, that's my calling to, in life. But this word, that's what the word means. Um, many people like the pay that comes with, uh, with a job, but not the work. And the wonderful philosopher Steve Martin addresses the, this in his co- a common desire. All I've ever wanted was an honest week's pay for an honest day's work. You know? But that's not real life. That's not the way it works. And so we're likely to spend, as we, we open the series... A one-third of your waking hours until you get to retirement. I know it's a depressing beginning. Uh, one-third of your time before you retire in work. And so it's vital for us to think about jobs and what the Bible says and what God has to say about such a significant time and part of our lives. 
So today's passage is a story about a gigantic work project. It's one of the most significant work projects that you'd find if you're in building and construction. You'd appreciate this, this uh, gigantic endeavor. And we want to find out some things. And we see the motivations that drive people to do the things. They, they want to achieve something spectacular. And it isn't pretty in these attitudes. But we want to dig into this story and we find some revealing motivations for work. And we want to find out what God has to say to us this morning. Because what we believe that God actually speaks through his word. So we've got to start by understanding what's going on in, in chapter 11. We have to start with context. This is what's happening. The atmosphere of chapter 10 is one of migration, of movement. People are beginning to, to thrust out from a center. So God's, the Garden of Eden uh, was the center and people are beginning to move out like spokes in a wheel radiating out to the corners of the, of the earth. And this chapter actually sort of opens on this note as men and women move out into this place called Shinar. It's a stretch of land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the name Shinar indicates that these people are actually Hamites. They're, they're descendants of Ham one of the sons of Noah. And in chapter 10, we're, we're told that it's the Hamites who settle in this, this, this land of Shammar near Babylonia. The Mes- Mesopotamia is where we know it today. It's a branch of this family that migrates into the Tigris and Euphrates areas. And they find this level ground. Everyone's looking for level ground because that's a great place to what? To build a, a city. So they start, they build this, they find this level ground. And the inventiveness of the people comes to, comes to be. You, you begin to see it. They find out that, you know, not all the things that we had back there are here. So they have to find new ways of building. There's not as much stone in this land. It's, it's, it's more fertile. It's more, more flat. And so they didn't find all these rocks and stones to build it. So they made bricks out of dirt and clay. And they discover a process of burning those bricks in, in, first in the sun. And then they find out that if we heat them in a furnace, it makes them even harder. It makes them even better. And they, they begin to make these hard and impermeable brick, even that we sometimes see and use today. And all of this is given to us in you know, one sentence in the Bible. It's really just a sentence passing. But we know from history, that's, that's what, it, it occupied a period of time. They learned. These men and women didn't discover it all in one day. They, they learned how to make these bricks and to burn them. They lacked the lime that's needed for cement. So they, they couldn't make mortar like you would need to build these buildings. So what do they find? They find tar pits. And they find this word bituum, and it's really natural asphalt. And so they find out that that natural asphalt is kind of sticky. And this makes a great way to stick bricks together. And so they begin to build, and they, they find that they can make bricks and use asphalt for mortar. mortar and they, they just adapt to the situation that they're in. And so we find, it as we read chapter 10, that a bit of problem, there's a, a, sorry, as we read 10 and then we look into 11, there's a bit of a problem here. 
Genesis 1, 1 to 9 says that there's only one language. It talks about the origin of languages. But if you were careful in reading chapter 10, you'd find out that people and languages are being described before the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 10.5, if you were to look over there, you'd see this verse. It says, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each to their own language, by their clans and by their nations. So this is a bit of a, a problem if you were to read it through chronologically. So how do we, how do we understand what hap- what's going on here? And the author does know what he's doing. He's, he's not surprised because only one verse earlier in verse 31 there is talk about this languages, so he's not forgetting and making mistakes. What we want to know is the solution to this matter is to recognize that the author has not just put the stories in chronicle or, order. That's what we used to, we're used to in the English language. We, we're used to chronology. But here he wants to build out a story where sometimes you tell the story where if you have something shocking to say, something that you want people to do, you put it at the end of the story. You explain it in that way. You put it at the be- sometimes you put the event at the beginning, sometimes you wait and put it at the end. And so after the flood, God says to Noah in, in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what chapter 10 describes. It's happening, people, languages spreading all over, multiplying. It looks like they're simply ofil- uh, obeying and fulfilling God's command, but it's it looks like obedience, but chapter 11, verse 1, drops this bomb on us. It wasn't obedience. They weren't spreading. They were actually beginning to cluster. They were actually getting into cities. We're going to find out why in a few moments. We find out the real motivation behind their work. It's, it's one of those unique times where sometimes people do things in the Bible and we don't know always what's going on in their minds. What's the motivation behind it? But here, God gives us the glimpse. He gives us the ability to see the motivation behind the people's hearts in this big project. So we, we need to re, re-look at this. Let's, uh, let's just look again at verses 1 to 4. It says, Now the whole earth has one language in, in the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and, and settled there. And they said to each other, Let's make these bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the mountains. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That second part is really key for us to understand motivation. The key statements in this, in, in this verse here, it, it, we find out four things. They aim, first of all, to build a city. That's the first thing. They aim to build a tower. They aim to make a name for themselves. And they, na- they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. Those are the four aims of the people. And the first two correspond to the second two. Building a city is the way one avoids being dispersed over the whole earth. Remember, this goes against God's command. This is going against what God says to scatter and fill the earth. And building a tower to the heavens is a way to make a name for yourself. So the city and the tower are just outward 
uh, examples, outward expressions of inward sins. I want to say that again. The, the city and the tower in this story are just outward expressions of inward sins. And the, we're meant to understand the motivation. And at the core, it's self-centered. And this has really huge implications and bearing as we think about work in our lives. Because if, we're, if our motivations get off and they get into self, they, it's so easy for our work to become self-centered, to be selfish in nature. And so in this work project called the Tower of Babel, we can see three ways. I want to, want to build that out, where, how our work can become selfish. First of all, this, the, the first part we see, work becomes selfish when it's motivated by a love of praise. How many of you love praise in your life? Most of us love to be praised. Okay? As Matt uh, spoke about it at last reunion, there's a, there's a powerful inclination for us to take work and to make it our identity, the main basis of our meaning, our identity. But when this happens, work, when this happens, work is no longer a way to create and bring out the wonders of the created order. That's, what, that's the way John Calvin would have uh, described it. But if you didn't like that, Martin Luther would have talked about it being an instrument of God's providence, serving the basic needs of our neighbor. Whether it's John Calvin or Martin Luther, there's, there's something about it not being at the self-centeredness piece that we want to capture. Instead, it becomes, if we, if we take work and it, we, we're motivated by love of praise, it becomes a way of distinguishing myself from my neighbor to show the world and prove to myself that I am in some way special. I want to be special. And we look into these texts, we ask the question, what are these builders doing this for? It seems like a lot of effort. Okay? Why are they doing this? But if we were then turn a question back on ourselves and ask the question is, what, what, what inspires you? What what are your, your most ambitious co-workers? What are they doing? What are you doing your work for? And verse 4 makes this motivation clear. It's to maximize their power, their glory, and their autonomy. They're in control. And this speaks to insecurity in our lives. Because if people lack a name, okay, if people lack a name, it means they don't know who they are. And if we either get our name, our defining essence, our worth, and our uniqueness from what God has done for us, or else we are going to make the name for ourselves. We're going to attempt to do it. We're going to see what we can do for ourselves in this life. But this is what this is exactly what God doesn't want for us. He wants us to know. He wants. I'm going to give you your name. Right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation two seventeen, he talks about this. He says, "He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name, 
written on that stone so that no one else knows except for the one who receives it. As Christians, we receive our name from God. Simply put, people have made grandiose plans in this world. To, and they, in this story, they want to make us a tower that has its tops in the heavens. Now, we don't try to do that in our world, do we? Okay? Well, the CN Tower in, in Toronto, I don't know which, uh, how much purpose the CN Tower holds. It costs a lot of money to put up. Purpose? The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which passed the size of, uh, of CN Tower and other towers. Not many people live in that tower. The Trump Tower in New York, there's purpose. Uh, there's a few stores along the bottom, a few cafes. But they're buildings. They're just buildings that exist to show off ex- architectural, architectural wonder. And we build these in our cities to say, what? Our city has arrived. We are, we are uh, a city that, the city that the rest of the world should notice, that should come and visit. That's what it means. That there's no other real point to say, except to say the city has arrived. And everything in this passage is pointing to people getting their identity in their work. The problem is they're assigning value to something that they'd be better off getting from God. But the symptom of this is usually some type of materialism where we spend money or we, we put our money into things that we think will bring us legacy. That if we just spend it on this, if we have the, the, the better home, that's going to leave the legacy for my kids or it's just going to send a, a legacy, a, a message to the world around me. The better car. Let's, let's post the exotic vacation on Facebook. And as we think about it, and we want to transition in thinking about our work, isn't this a struggle for our own workplaces? We can seek to position ourselves in, in our world for the praise of others. The question really is, whose praise are you seeking at the end of each workday? Is it your boss's eye that you're looking for? Is it your coworker's admiration? For those who are at home with kids and you're very unlikely to get the affirmation from your kids, uh, are, you, are you looking for that good job at the end of the day, the notice that you accomplish the dishes uh, uh, and the, ki- the kids are still alive. Uh, we all need encouragement. I'm not talking about, we all need that. We're not talking about not having encouragement in our lives. But did your sense of whether or not you even had a good day at work come mainly from the notice of others around you? Is it enough for you to know before God that you did the best job you could do that day and he took notice of it. Do you ever think about that the, the audience of your work is God? And this is the biblical answer. That's the, that's the biblical answer to this idea of the, the kind of questions that I just asked you there. But we all struggle with. We all need this 
deeply rooted sense that we are in some way our specialness, that we are special. We need to know that it's not an accomplishment of task, but it's in God's pleasure of us as children that when we use our talents, He is pleased with us that day. But if we don't apply this to our hearts, we will live for the praise of others. And if you are at all successful in your work, this, this has a tendency to lead to the second motivation, the, the, other, the, the next problem, that work becomes selfish when it's motivated by pride. Pride is a motivator. And it's revealed in this passage. I want to, see, I want to show you this. It's less through the, the work of an individual, but it's more through the group here. The people desire to build a tower seen by all, one that catches the eye of all. And if we look at this, the second verse, look again. It says, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So the people are positioning themselves in such a way that they would be the envy of all the cities around them, of all the people that, they would, that people would notice. We just talked about finding our, our own identity in our work, in our individualistic work. But we can also find here a kind of group identity. Do you know that group identity exists? That we find ourselves in our, in our group, our nation, pride. And this kind of idol uh, results in snobbery. I also wanted to include snobbery in a, in a, a sermon. It's just a great one. It's like an English word, you know, faulty towers types of things. Snobbery, imperialism, colonialism, all kinds of racism. This is group pride to its extent. We see a kind of competitive pride that the people have in building the tallest building around. If they built it, there's a message there. It's like, we're the center of civilization, and we should be respected. We should be be proud of this. We will be wealthier. People will look at us. They wouldn't dare attack this city because we are the center of power, of wealth. And with comes that, comes walls. And this vivid example of competitive pride that's found here, if we think about it, often drives our workplace environments in our lives. And sometimes it's good. It, it can come, it can stimulate innovation and efficiencies. But there are gradual harmful effects when your workplace environment is just dominated by this pride. C.S. Lewis addresses these effects in his book, Mere Christianity. I want to read you this quote. He says this, Now I want you to get this clear, that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only are having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, But they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Lewis shows us that we can either do our jobs out of of interest in serving human beings or we can race to position ourselves in our companies, in our workplaces, so that we can actually look down on others. 
And you know, it's not always the most obvious. You think, I'd never do that. But honestly, not one of us can, can purely serve others out of self-interest all the times. We are just, we, that's impossible in our, in our imperfection and our brokenness. But all we need to say is honestly, as we read this, is that there's a certain level of brokenness in our whole group. And it affects how we are so easily positioned to work so that we are on top of others. It drives the, the corporate world. And you've got to get over others. And it doesn't matter how you climb the ladder as long as you keep climbing. Who you, who you hurt along the way. And when this happens, when pride is the motivation, our work inevitably becomes selfish. And finally, there, there's a third motivator that we can see right here in this passage. We want this passage to drive it. Not just, there's so many more motivations. But this passage talks about another thing that drives people in their work. And it's this, that work becomes selfish when it's motivated by security. Verse 4 again. Let's make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So the, as the people seek to build a, a city and, a cluster, and they cluster, they're directly dis, disobeying what God has told them to do. Right? Genesis 9, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Building a city seems like a good idea. We know better than God. Why would I, why would I put myself out in, into the wilderness with a, with a small group of people if I can just cluster together? It's so much more easy to build Defenses. Why would I do that? Building a city brings strength. Building a city produces walls. Building a city produces a veneer of power that would cause anyone who wanted to steal anything from us to think twice about attacking. And all of these things seem good and on a surface level. If they had a business meeting, everyone would go, this is wise. This is, this is a good idea. We should protect ourselves. But the harmful effects of working solely to build our security is that we begin to depend on our own ability to manufacture security in our lives instead of finding security in God's protection. And that is God's message to you, is that nothing is secure in this world and that he wants you to lean into your, your security into him. That isn't to say that putting away money or saving money for uh, is a bad thing at all. The problem usually is that is in overworking so that we can create security that, so that you are seemingly invincible to all the things that the rainy days of your life. You never turn down overtime or the long commute in your life. For the dream of providing security for you and your family. And the problem is, and we just said this, is the veneer. It's just a covering. Because there's no security in this world. Your job. You thought, I bet you if you asked a Ford employee 
uh, in Detroit, whether in the, about a few decades ago, whether or not they had security. And how that whole city is now trying to reinvent itself, not around the auto industry anymore. <laughs> what seems to be secure is only temporary in this life. And this is what God says if you read Ecclesiastes, if you read Proverbs, there's only a temporary nature to the things that we build into our lives that are, we think are for our own security. And if, you, and if you try to build your security outside of him, it is absolutely exhausting. Are you exhausted in your life right now? Are you empty? Do you just feel like you're trying, you're running the wheel, and work was never meant to do the security for us? The psalmist understands that God never desires his people to be self-sufficient. Would you turn with me, if you have Psalm 20? I just want to read you this psalm. It says this. Psalm 20, right in the, almost in the center of your Bibles. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the, the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and may he give you support from Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and, re, and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May, may we shout for joy over the, or your salvation and then, and then in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions, all your asking. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from the holy heavens with the saving might of his right hand. Now this is the key. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. Some in their battle, in their, in their things in the strength of their armies, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. As we finish here this morning, I believe that the Tower of Babel is so relevant about thinking about our work because it's, a, it's, a, it's when we talk about vocations, our calling this passage reveals a self-centeredness that we're so easily able to, to, to slip into, and we have to recognize it. If we don't slow down, if we don't stop and start to say, what am I doing this whole thing for? Then our work just progresses and slips into this selfish nature. And it's not just in our lives, but you actually see it in our workplaces. The whole group, the culture, we find ourselves chasing after the praise of others. We, we find a competitive jockeying for our places of, of, of employment so that people are below us and people are, uh, people are just kind of fighting their way over each other, that they're better than one another. And when then we see this wearing chase as we try to build our security through homes and bank accounts and retirement plans. And these are all workplace symptoms of the curse in the fall, Adam and Eve... They choose to disbelieve God when he says, I'm going to be all you need. And when Satan's words come, and says, do you want to be like God? They choose and they say yes, and they take the fruit. 
And we all have this tendency towards self-centeredness instead of God-centeredness. But I want to tell you this. In all this negativity, there is hope for our work. I want to tell you why I believe that so much in my heart today. So think about this. I believe God changes people. And I don't believe that just because I've seen it in my everyday life. Um, But I see it as you read the pages of Scripture. Because the people that God chooses are some of the most uh, interesting, disobedient, and stubborn people that I've ever, I've ever read about in my entire life. If you want to read the, book, the story of Samson and how God could use a guy like that. But I believe that God changes people, especially in their worldviews. And this is important because although your work will never be perfect until Jesus returns, there is a storyline in Scripture where God redeems individuals and he redeems people. And he increasingly can use people for his own glory if they get on board, if they, if they listen to him and obey And we see this when in the mess of the lives of people in Scripture. And I ask you today, is that if, that has God's power and His desire for His glory changed at all in this world? Has it changed? Let's hear that again. Has God's uh, desire for His own glory changed? No. So He wants to change people today just like he did here. But the question is, do we believe that? That people can, when they surrender their lives, can be transformed and our work can be transformed. And that gives me incredible hope that our work is not just futile, but that God can change it. And that he wants to redeem ordinary people here in Guelph And why would he not want to do it with us? And the second thing that gives me hope today is as Christians, we can understand in fresh ways that work is, is partnering with God. You're not having to do this task and get exhausted that you're called to partner for the care of this world. And this should give us an appreciation for all the work around us. There's no hierarchy in the church. There's nobody's work is better than others. We're all needed. And that work across the board is is just, uh, all of it is valuable and honorable in God's kingdom. It gives me hope this morning. And we can value all work. Here's another one. You can value the work, not just the Christians, but you can just, you can find common ground with the non-Christians and appreciate them and say, what you're doing, this is, this is amazing. You know, you may not be thinking that you're working for God, but this is what you're doing. And you can point people to God when you affirm their work in this world. And this gives me hope for my conversations. Does it give you hope? But maybe here you have a really challenging workplace. That's the honest truth for you. You're sitting here. You're a real challenging workplace. And the gospel tells us that you're not alone. Have hope that the Spirit of God is working inside of you, giving you a moral compass that God himself is living in your life. 
You know, the, you have the moral compass of the Spirit of God living inside of you. You don't have to follow your workplace's morality. Even in those hard ethical decisions. The gospel tells us that the Spirit gives us motivation for our work that would not be there on our own. And we have the power to enable us to work and to, mo- to work in the most difficult of places. And this gives me hope for my, my work today. And I believe this is really good news. We should, of all people, have tremendous hope that as we understand the gospel and how work are not separated categories, they're not separate things that God doesn't care about, but God desires to use his story to blend with your unique calling to do something incredibly special in this world. We pray for that this week. Amen. God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the Tower of Babel, how you put it in this, this story, is, and you gave us the, in, the insight into the hearts of the people so that we might look here in the 21st century and look at our own work and ask ourselves the hard questions and find the hope that you offer in the gospel. And so today, Father, would your word be powerful as it always is, is because it's from you, and would you do the, the things that you want to do in it? that you would convict us. Maybe today somebody needs, needs to repent of the, the motivations behind their work. And so pray, I pray for that. I pray whatever is needed today. I pray someone who's just really struggling, that they would find encouragement, even those last words I just spoke today, that there is hope in our work. It's from you. And so we offer this today. We offer this, uh, this sermon as a, as a worship to you and ask that your heart would do now the work in our hearts and we love you in Jesus name amen invite you if you need prayer this morning just during this time we're going to come back and take communion but are we going to sing a song but if you need prayer this morning just come on over here and our team will pray with you this morning